Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and you can find out more. Give them a call. Johnson'sAirConditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Michael Cannon. He is director of health studies at the Cato Institute. Sharon Kenny is an author. She also writes commentary on travel, dining, and entertainment uh, locally. Here we'll visit with Sharon as well as Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It is already April the 30th. Can you believe it? And on this day in 1993, four years after publishing a proposal for an idea of linked information system, uh, computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee released the source code for the world's first web browser and editor. 1993, that's not that long ago. Originally called Mesh, the browser that he dubbed World Wide Web became the first royalty-free, easy-to-use means of browsing the emerging information network that developed in the Internet as we know it today. Berners-Lee was a fellow at the CERN, at CERN, the research organization headquartered in Switzerland. Other research institutions like MIT and Stanford University had developed complex systems for internally sharing information, and Berners-Lee sought a means of connecting CERN systems to others. He outlined a plan for such a network in 1989 and developed it over the following years. The computer he used, the Next Desktop, became the world's first Internet server. Berners-Lee wrote the published and first uh, webpage, a simplistic outline of the World Wide Web Project in 1991. CERN began sharing access with other institutions and soon it opened up to the general public. Uh, in releasing the source code for the project to the public domain two years later, Berners-Lee essentially opened up access to the project to anyone in the world. Making it free and relatively easy to explore, <laughs> it was pretty darn difficult back in the day, if you recall. Uh, simple web uh, browsers like Mosaic appeared a short time later, before long web had become... Uh, far, by far the most popular system of its kind. Within a matter of years, Berners-Lee invention had revolutionized information sharing and in so doing had dramatically altered the way the human beings communicate. The creation and globalization of the web is widely considered one of the most transformational events in human history. It certainly is. 4.39 billion folks, including you, are now estimated to be using the Internet, according to over half the global population, and that's accounting for over half the population in the world. Uh, the average American now spends 24 hours a week online. The Internet's rise has been the greatest expansion in information access in human history, has led to ex exponential growth in the total amount of data in the world, and has facilitated a spread of knowledge, ideas, and social movements that was unthinkable as recently as 1990s. Isn't that interesting? 1993, how many years ago was that? That's not that many years. Less than 30 years ago. Amazing. Well, the Florida Department of Health on Thursday reported 101 new cases of COVID-19 in Cuyahoga County and one additional death. That's up a little bit over the past few days, but 101, that's not bad in a population of 350,000 folks. 
during Wednesday's appearance on NBC's Today, White House Chief of Staff uh, Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci discussed the new mask guidelines that will allow vaccinated people to go outside without masks. Host Savannah Guthrie asked Fauci when kids are uh, going to be able to play without masks. Fauci suggested the time would come once they are vaccinated. He cautioned that since children are unvaccinated and out of the community, they are more at risk of getting infected. What? Are you kidding? Uh, first of all, I thought we were only allowing people 16 and older to get vaccinated. And now he's suggesting that young people should be vaccinated in preschool. A stunning CBS poll which claims 85... Oh, uh, before we get to that, Savannah Guthrie apparently has a child. And uh, she said, well, wait a minute, I can walk to the bus stop without a mask, but when my son gets off the bus... Uh, who coming come from preschool, he has to wear a mask. And uh, Fauci said, well, yeah, that's right. Well, isn't that uh, a little uh, disjointed? Does that make sense? And he said, well, uh, yes, it does. I don't think Fauci knows what he's talking about. Just my opinion. Well, a stunning CBS poll, which claimed 85% of Americans embraced Joe Biden's joint address speech last night, has turned out to be a fraud, with pollster YouGov surveying just 169 Republicans as part of the broader 943 people polled. So it wasn't 85%. In a stunning duplicitous story aimed at shoring up the response to Biden's speech, CBS claimed on television and on their website most viewers who tuned in to watch Biden's address liked what they heard and came away feeling optimistic about America. <laughs> I don't think so. Speaking of flip-flops, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris or Kamala, I guess she wants to be called, was being interviewed on ABC News on Thursday where she essentially agreed with Senator Tim Scott and his claim that America is not a racist country. What? She says we have institutional or, or uh, racism, structural racism. That's unbelievable. Now she's saying, well, nope, it's uh, we're not a racist country. There are racists, she, she said. Early numbers show only 11.6 million folks tuned in to Biden's speech to Congress on a Wednesday night, way down from the similar speeches by ex-President Trump. In fact, uh, then-new President Trump's first speech to Congress on April the 30th, uh, 2017, drew 48 million viewers. And although not at all the numbers are, are, are yet for Biden's speech, I've seen numbers between 11.6 million and up to 22 million for Biden's speech, but nevertheless way below uh, what Trump drew. Even according to vociferously pro-Biden deadline, it was admitted that Biden's first address to spar sparse Congress was one of the least watched in recent history. Deadline has been uh, Biden's speech viewership. Speech's viewership is down by 49% compared to the Trump speech, although those numbers just don't add up very well. Their own article, given the best case scenario, pegs Biden's numbers at about 13.5 million tops which is not even a third of Trump's numbers. The deadline article continues with more subjectively and apologetics as it closes with the following. It's worth noting that for the most part, the first joint uh, session of Congress is usually some of the best viewership numbers a president gets over their time in office as the novelty factor is still high. I mention that because unlike Trump, Barack Obama and other recent commanders in chief, Biden has been a part of the national political life for decades. As well, it's not like the president isn't literally giving a speech or remarks almost every day since he took office. <laughs> Just saying. This is despite the fact that Biden went months without giving a press conference. 
upon taking office, an unprecedented move in American history. So sparsely watched, pretty dull, and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, fake speech. Well, a stunning CBS poll, I think we said that uh, uh, earlier. Uh, by the way, Joe uh, Biden got lost on stage yesterday in Georgia. He couldn't find his face mask. Uh, the guy had two vaccine shots, but still wears a, a mask as a prop. He wants you to get vaccine, get a vaccinated shot too. Uh, Nurse Jill came on stage and helped him look for the mask in his notebook and on the podium. Thank goodness an attentive hate, uh, ran on stage with a spare mask. By the way, he had the mask in his pocket. <laughs> this happens to me, so uh, I'm not being critical. Anyhow, this administration is a complete sideshow. It would be funny if it weren't so dangerous and deceitful. Well, did you see Jimmy Kimmel's interview of Mike Lindell the other night? It's on YouTube, and I really encourage you to watch it. Mike was great. I encourage you to see that it's about 15 minutes. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel was pretty sharp. He was uh, gracious, but also attacking, trying to, I think, uh, trap Lindell. But uh, Mike, he's pretty smooth, pretty confident, and he held his ground. So uh, it was pretty, a pretty positive experience for me. I hope you'll take a look at Jimmy Kimmel's interview of Mike Lindell. Uh, I, I think if you just Google it, you'll find it easily. Well, a growing number of American parents are getting t uh, together to find ways to block the spread of the quasi-Marxist critical race theory in schools where they uh, send their children. They see the doctrine as a culprit in creating a toxic environment and exacerbating problems it claims to ameliorate School officials have been responding with denials or silence. CRT, or critical race theory, has been spreading throughout academia, enlightenment, entertainment, government, schools, and corporations. It redefines America's history as a struggle between oppressors, that'd be white people, and the oppressed, that's everybody else. Similarly to Marx's reduction of human history to a struggle between the bourgeois, bourgeoisie, and the proletariat, it labels institutions that are emerged in uh, majority white societies as systemically or structurally racist. CRT's entry into schools was, went largely unnoticed by parents due to its being dressed up as equity, anti-racist, or culturally responsive initiatives. It has spawned an industry of speakers, trainers, and consultants who get paid to diagnose an organization as systemically racist, prescribe CRT-based initiatives, as the remedy, and then to help implement it over uh, years to come. The existence of systemic racism is usually based on a disparate outcomes for uh, different groups, such as lower average test scores or more detentions for black students. Scholars have pointed out that the argument is spacious, to say the least. And uh, Keith Law told us earlier that uh, we don't allow this kind of teaching in our schools, but apparently it's snuck into some textbooks that are being distributed. So. Uh, uh, Keith is going to take that to uh, the Commissioner of Education. We'll see how that all turns out. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Uh, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the uh, Cato Institute. We'll do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show 
here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I want you to check out Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. Hope you'll check it out. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Choicesocial.us is a website. Coming up, we're going to visit with Sharon Kenny, the author of Where Should We Eat? Right now we have with us William Yateman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website. C-A-T-O.org. So, William, i got to start off with asking you about Biden's speech. And uh, <laughs> to me, I, not many people are impressed. How did you feel about it? I guess I share the majority opinion. Um, it was certainly long. I mean, it was about 6,000 words and spanned an hour. Uh, it was before a cavernous and mostly empty um, room. So, it, so it, I didn't find it very lively. I thought the most interesting aspect was he said, point blank, we're going to turn peril into possibility. We're going to turn crisis into opportunity. Um, and that's exactly what we've talked about on so many Fridays, this Rahm Emanuel notion of never letting a crisis go to waste. Um, and I, I certainly think that's evident in the policies that he, he's been proposing. 
Um, so overall, wasn't terribly impressed by the speech. And I should note this. I was a little worried about the optics, if you will, mm-hmm. of um, him presenting before a room, you know, a mostly empty room of people who had who'd been, who had been vaccinated but were nonetheless wearing masks. Yeah. Um, of course I support vaccination. Of course I support mask wearing. But I, the, the message, you know, America is getting back on its feet. And mm-hmm. I just fear that the message he was sending was, Um, contradictory to where I hope society is heading. Well, he also turned, uh, in my view, reality upside down. I mean, you know, the economy is doing okay, recovering nicely. Uh, uh, We we just don't have the the crisis that I think he's trying to to sell us. It was kind of interesting to see Ted Cruz kind of uh, dozing off (laughs) during the speech. That wasn't wasn't very good optics either. (laughs) No, I agree with that. Um, and I'll say, with respect to what you just noted, the macroeconomic data came out yesterday that indicated pretty darn robust economic growth. Right. Um, and I'll say this as well. During the Trump administration, I don't think it's controversial, and I don't think it's in doubt, um, to say that the economy was doing pretty well. And indeed, uh, the, the economy's minority job growth um, was exceptional. So I do wonder um, whether or not we are in a crisis. I mean, whether or not we, we all recognize for the last year we've been pent up. Um, but do, do we need the government to stimulate the economy, or do we need the government to get out of the way so that the economy can come roaring back? Yeah. Um, I think that's a fair question. Yeah, I'll, I'll vote for the latter, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he, he announced his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. Uh, what are your thoughts? It's, I guess, part and parcel of what we were just discussing. So this is the latest $2 trillion spending plan, mm-hmm. um, and it's remarkable. Um, so that's, you know, we had the American Rescue Plan that was a couple months ago, $2 trillion in, in putatively COVID stimulus. Um, we had the American Jobs Plan that was the $2.3 trillion putative infrastructure package. Um, and now we've got another $2 trillion plan. So... I think, uh, actually, Senator Mitt Romney hit the nail on the head when he was interviewed after the president's speech and this latest proposal for this American Families Plan, and he said that um, if the president were a younger were, were a younger man, then I'd say his parents need to take away his credit card. I mean, I think well, in this instance, I guess Congress is, is, is playing the role of the parents, but, um, you know, $6 trillion worth of spending, that's... I don't think that's what Americans were, were getting on board with right. um, last November. So, so we'll see how that plays out at the polls. Uh, it's so interesting. And also, I mean, some of the money that's being spent on, for example, free community college, free uh, preschool. Right now, we're seeing this federal overreach into public education. And quite frankly, it's very concerning and very appalling because there's so much, uh, you know, 16, 19 projects, so many different things trying to, uh, indoctrinate our kids about uh, America as a socialist country. <laughs> the uh, I thought Tim Scott had uh, an effective response along those lines regarding the cultural claims that that are coming out of this administration. Um, but but I'll say this to, to that point: it's it is head spinning. I mean, you know, it's just a, a trillion dollar package after trillion dollar package, and they're throwing so much at the public at once. Uh, one wonders whether or not it's a strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, that is, they're sort of keeping everyone's eye off the ball um, by always, you know, having them confront a, a new crisis, a new spending package, a new putative ill with America. Um, so uh, 
head spinning would be how I describe it. Yeah, and what's conspicuously absent in the agenda is taking care of the crisis at the border. Immigration is not my bailiwick, but I'll say this. I was thinking just this morning how uh, the world would be turned upside down Mm -hmm. if the Trump administration had maintained a media blackout at the border. Um, And no one's talking about that anymore. I find that remarkable. So setting aside immigration policy per se, which is not my bailiwick, I I will note that what a wacky world we live in, whereby Biden is, in essence, allowed to get away with uh, blacking out media access to our southern border. That's preposterous, but... uh, um, for some reason, he's allowed to get away with it. Yeah, absolutely. How would you assess Biden's first 100 days? I think that um, Senator, Senate Minority Leader McConnell put it well, and we've got a bit of a bait and switch. Um, you know, I, 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 his inauguration speech was all about unity, and Uncle Joe Biden is his image. Um, again, this sort of everyone, avuncular, you know, we can all get along with him. But the first hundred odd days have been a, a progressive wish list, in essence. I mean, just we spoke about it all this call, but just trillion dollar spending bill after trillion dollar spending bill that would fundamentally alter American society. I don't think that's what Americans bought into last November. You know, I said that at the outset, and, and I'm curious. Um, and, and I suspect that the results in the next election, the, the, the 2022 House election, the congressional election, um, I think Americans are going to reject this, but we'll see. We will indeed. I mean, I think, you know, the litmus test is AOC says every, everything's going great. He's doing a great job. So, you know, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> William Yateman, again, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Terrific organization. I hope you check out the very robust website, Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, I'll also visit with uh, Michael Cannon, who's the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. 
Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thank you so much for joining us. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I'm very proud to have served as board chairman for 15 years when we first got started, and now great things are happening, building a new home in downtown Naples. You can visit golfshoreplayhouse.org to find out more. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. He is Director of Health Studies at the uh, Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So uh, I was wondering, if uh, was there anything about health care in President Biden's uh, speech on Wednesday night? You know, there's a lot, and nothing highlights Joe Biden's enthusiasm for giving himself and the government more power than his approach to health care. Hmm. He wants to expand Obamacare by subsidizing health insurance for people making six figures or more. Maybe in some parts of the country, people making up to half a million dollars per year would get subsidies to help them afford Obamacare. You know, if Obamacare is so expensive that people making two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year need wow. subsidies from the government to afford it. I mean, this is this is a pretty abject failure, and yet, and yet uh, Joe Biden thinks that Obamacare is such a success that he wants to double down on it, spend another $200 billion over 10 years to cover just a number 1.3 million people. That's a staggering amount of money to cover uh, such a relatively small number of people, uh, and yet Joe Biden's enthusiasm for this knows no bounds. And another example of his enthusiasm for government came through when he admitted that Medicare overpays for prescription drugs. And, you know, he admirably said, we want to reduce the amount that uh, Medicare pays for prescription drugs because they're overcharging taxpayers for these drugs. And I applaud that. I've supported that uh, proposal. Uh, But then what would he do with the savings? Would he learn his lesson that government programs uh, pay too much, that yeah. they are wasteful, and we sh- and that we should try to roll them back? No, he he says that even though Medicare's you know proven that it, for twenty years the Part D program has been overpaying for drugs, and for decades before that the other parts of Medicare have been doing the same. We're going to expand that. We're going to take that saving that I find that that I'm going to get from reducing these overpayments. And we're going to use that to expand the Medicare program. You know, if Medicare, if Medicare is so wasteful that it's been overpaying for prescription drugs for decades, why do you want to expand that sort of model? 
And, and so his, his enthusiasm uh, for big government and his economic either ignorance or willful blindness really came through in his speech. All right. Well, thank you for those comments, uh, Michael. In my opinion, I mean, he's just taking us to, uh, down the road to, down, uh, to socialism and, again, getting government involved in our, in our medical care, in our health care. And, uh, you know, to me, the, the comment about uh, increasing the subsidies for Obamacare, it seems to me that you mentioned we have, what, 1.8 million people out of 331 million people on Obamacare. But I think uh, by design, he's trying to increase that number to get more people on Obamacare. He is. And, and the, uh, even reporters, health policy reporters, who tend not to be a group that's very skeptical of big government, even some of them have said, wow, the price tag on this idea is staggering. Yeah, uh, I mentioned before that his plan to make these Obamacare subsidies for the upper class permanent would cost about $200 billion over 10 years. Wow. That's, co- that's compared to, and would only cover 1.3 million people. Yeah. Now, if you look at, if you remember Obamacare, when they passed that, that, that cost $1 trillion over 10 years was the idea. Yep. And that was supposed to cover 32 million people. Hmm. So, so this is, you know, Obamacare was a terrible deal to begin with, but uh, this is an even worse deal if your metric is how many people are, are you trying to cover with health insurance. You know, I, I recall, was it Donna Shalala, I think, was the person who was charged with uh, designing Obamacare. And it, she could have made, uh, you know, the decisions about what's included in Obamacare and the mandates and so forth could not have been worse. It's kind of like no deductibles and all kinds of things that are just driving up the price. And the consequence of all that is, uh, quite frankly, it's unattractive. Many people don't use it, and that has big, uh, I think it has big duck deductibles, if I'm not mistaken. So um, we can have better. Uh, we can have if we had insurance companies designing consumer-friendly uh, insurance programs, we'd be a lot better off. I think you're correct, and the, the problem with Obamacare is even deeper than that, as we have discussed before. It makes the quality of coverage that people receive worse because it penalizes their quality coverage and leaves many people with worse access to coverage rather than better. Uh, discouraging conversation, quite frankly, because, again, uh, I think what you're confirming and what I'm uh, learning now is that uh, uh, President Obama is intent on uh, bringing everything under the umbrella of government at the expense of uh, uh, the private sector. And he's uh, it was <laughs> number one on his list is, is uh, health care. That's right, and uh, he hasn't learned his lesson from his years as a drug warrior either. Mm-hmm. One of the more troubling things that his administration has proposed is a ban on menthol cigarettes. Uh-huh. Now, at the, this is sort of ironic because at the same time we are talking about decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, ending the, 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 that part of the drug war. Joe Biden wants to open up a new part of the drug war, uh, a, 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 new, a, a new front. And at the same time, Joe Biden says that he is going to clean up 
policing and he's saying Black Lives Matter and he uh, wants to improve relations between African Americans and the police. By banning menthol cigarettes, he is giving the police a, a, a new reason to stop and harass African Americans. Menthol cigarettes are more popular among African American smokers than any other group of smokers. My goodness. Wildly disproportionately popular among uh, African Americans. And, and he is going to give, if he bans menthol cigarettes, he's going to give the police an excuse to stop African Americans uh, because they think that uh, they are smelling menthol cigarettes. This is, uh, this is how drug wars start. Yeah. Politicians identify a drug that is popular with a minority community, but uh, not very popular with uh, voters at large. They ban it because voters at large don't care. It's not their rights that are being trampled. And then the police enforce that ban against that minority community, and you get this sort of relationship, the, the sort of policing and the sort of relationship and the sort of uh, police abuses that we have seen in the war on drugs more broadly. This is the same story that we've seen with opioids, with marijuana, and now President Biden is doing this uh, same thing with menthol cigarettes. I'll tell you something, Michael. I have not, I did not connect those dots. I did see uh, the thing about the menthol cigarettes news about that that he wanted to uh make them illegal but i didn't relate it to the to the black community that is so interesting you know i just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show michael again uh, director of health studies at the Cato institute michael cannon thank you so much for joining us here on the show anytime bob take care you as well thank you all right coming up we're going to visit with sharon kenny she is the author of where should we eat we're going to do that and more right here on the bob harden show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. 
Each advertising package includes a banner on bobharden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's not what Joe Biden wants, but it's what we want. I serve on the board proudly, and I hope you check out the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. We're talking about union activity. Right now we have with us Sharon Kenny. She writes commentary on, on travel. Uh, on dining and entertainment. She also wrote a book called Where Should We Eat? Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great to talk to you, Bob. It was great to talk to you as uh, as well. And Sharon, I know you're uh, following the cruise industry, and uh, we're very concerned because we, we signed up for a cruise in February, and uh, hope you can give us the good scoop. What's going on? Well, I, February of next year, you mean, Bob? Yeah, two, 22. 2022. Oh, you'll be fine. Good. You'll be fine as long as there's not a COVID 21 on the on the horizon. I think you'll be in great shape. <laughs> but we've actually had some good news in cruise for for the first time in 14 months. Uh, the CDC finally this week came out with some new guidance um, for returning to cruise and how that can happen in a safe way. And um, it's it's the first time that the cruise industry has had any new guidance since last October, huh. and um, we've, uh, and it was re- in response to a lot of pressure. CDC got a lot of pressure from, uh, I'm sure you heard from Governor DeSantis, from uh, Senator Rick Scott, and Marco Rubio um, in Alaska, the Senator Murkowski also in Texas, um, and, and all throughout the, the states, especially with major port cities. Sure. Um, they got a lot of uh, pressure from not only government representatives but or, or from elected representatives, but also from industry. Yep. You know, from the ports, the people who work in the ports, the businesses that support the cruise industry. It's been devastating to all of those industries to be basically without work for 14 months. Yeah. And so as a result of all of that, the CDC has finally made some moves. And um, so details, it looks like, um, they're saying vaccinated uh, people will need to be vaccinated, but not a hundred percent. Ninety eight percent of the crew, ninety five percent of the um, passengers um, would need to be vaccinated, which is you know kind of odd. They haven't gone into great detail about how that would be proven or anything like that. And the problem with that, Bob, is that it it disallows children because, as you know, there's no vaccination for children yet. And a lot of cruise lines, like Carnival and Disney, in particular, yeah, that's their major um, that's their major audience is children. So that's yet to be figured out. 
So the, this top-down stuff is just <laughs> unbelievable. It doesn't make sense at all. I'm not one for getting vaccinated myself. I don't know about you, but uh, uh, maybe I could be part of the 5% uh, that say able to get on a cruise ship uh, without getting vaccinated. But this is kind of strange to put a, a rule like 95%. Yeah, um, uh, I don't know what the reasoning is behind that. <laughs> that's, that's above my level. Yeah. But um, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's a path forward, it's, it, and maybe it's a starting point. I think there's also the option to do um, unvaccinated cruises, but then those have different rules. Um, that If you want to do unvaccinated cruises, you have to go through a series of test cruises to prove that it's safe. Huh. and um, a few other steps. And so that's another option uh-huh. um, that the cruise lines are looking into. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's so interesting to me that... Uh, I, by the way, did they mention a date of when the cruises can start? Yeah, so it looks like um, what the CDC has said, uh, because, you know, the problem is that these ships are right now in minimum, what's called minimum manning. So while they're sitting off the coast of um, Florida and Texas and California, these ships are sitting, you know, within 10 miles of the shore, um, they only have about 100 crew members, 100 to 150 crew members on that, you know, keep the ship running, keep things going, um, keep them in shape. So you need to bring in um, 1,000 people, for example, to run a you know, a, a, a probably a minimum of 1,000 people, more like 1,500 crew from around the world, get them trained, go through quarantine um, to get these ships up and running. Also, you know, get them fully staffed in terms of food, you know, getting, getting all the supplies on. So it's not like you can just turn on the lights and say, okay, well, we'll welcome people tomorrow. Yeah. It, it's a major effort to get these ships up, ramped up, and running, you know, and accepting guests. So that's going to be an issue, and that's why they, um, they're thinking July is probably where they're going to be able to get things going. It also is the start, well, not the start, but it is at least gives the cruise lines some kind of a summer season. You know, there's no point in getting cruises up for a month when they then have to move somewhere else. Good point. So, you know, cruise lines follow the sun, and they um, are in certain places for the summer, other places for the winter. So July is what they're looking at. The other part of this story is Alaska that hasn't been settled yet, and there's still the controversy around whether we can cruise into Alaska because of the restrictions of the Jones Act, and that Canada has basically closed its ports oh, that's right. to all ships. Yeah, And so there is, um, there is some talk they're trying to get a temporary reprieve of the Jones Act or get the Canadian government to allow our ships to just step, well, kind of stop in Canadian waters, not get anybody off. So uh, satisfy the Jones Act that they have stopped at a foreign port, but that they're not uh, disembarking anybody. And that's, you know, that's that's an issue for Canada. That's a pro- problem for those port cities like Vancouver and Victoria, yeah. and that they're not getting the revenue from you know, thousands of people coming into their city. Absolutely. Well, and one of the most beautiful... But at least it allows cruising into Alaska. Yeah, and uh, the Alaska cruise was just so exciting for us. We just enjoyed it so much. 
uh, we stopped in Victoria, but uh, is there? A, uh, I'm not sure I understand exactly. Which is it a possibility to just cruise from say uh, Los Angeles right up to Alaska and, and skip uh, the uh, Canadian stop? Well, this Canadian stops is only to satisfy the Jones Act, which is a long-standing maritime law that you cannot um, cruise only from one American port to another American port. You have to stop in a foreign port. That's and stupid. that's a long-standing <laughs> maritime law, and so that's why they did that stop in Victoria. That is so interesting. I did not know that. So it's, it's a, a law that... Uh, do you know what the thinking is behind that law? Um, so it's the same reason why, for example, a, um, a foreign airline like British Airways can't come in to America and fly from New York to Boston to Miami. Huh. The foreign-born, a foreign carrier cannot do that. Kind of, uh, an American carrier can, but as you know, cruise lines are all foreign registered, ah, that, and so foreign lines cannot do that from American ports. Uh, uh, you know what? I'd forgotten that. That, that. that is a very, very good point. So what are, your, uh, what, are you, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the cruises we should be thinking about? Well, obviously, as you said, Alaska is... is is every American should at one point in their life go to Alaska because it's just the most beautiful place and it's um, you just can't imagine it. And, you know, I, I've been a few times and it just takes my breath away every yeah. time I go. Um, also, cruises to Europe. I mean, it, it, I don't know if you noticed last week. I think it was last week or was it this week? I don't know. Days are so strange these days. But the EU has announced that uh, vaccinated Americans will be available, will probably be able to travel to Europe this summer. Yeah. So a Mediterranean cruise, Bob, take Linda on a Mer uh, Mediterranean <laughs> cruise. Well, we had we had one lined up last year, but it, got, it canceled. Well, actually, we were going to be going. I think it was August to uh, to uh, uh, Italy, and then we we're going to go to uh, to uh, uh, Cyprus uh, to. Israel. I mean, it was just a fabulous cruise that we lined up. We had to cancel it because of COVID. So, uh, you think those places are a good place to cruise now? Oh yes, actually, Seaborn, uh, which is a luxury line, uh, is has announced that they will be sailing out of, I believe, Athens to all around the Greek Isles and around there um, this summer. Nice. So, luxury, beautiful cruise line. Um, the other place, uh, definitely put on your bucket list, and again, it's a, it's a cold place, Antarctica, but there are more and more lines going to Antarctica, and that is apparently, I hate to use the term bucket list, but it is a once-in-a-lifetime trip. It's a major effort, because yeah. you do have to get to Antarctica, which is at least a week on a cruise ship, um, but it is unbelievable. Yeah, everybody unbelievable. I've talked to that's done the Antarctica trip just raves about it, so I uh, it's, it's got to be so interesting. Sharon Kenny, again, the author of Where Should We Eat? I genuinely appreciate your very timely commentary to Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Oh, great to talk to you, Bob. Thank you so much, Sharon. All right, coming up, Dave Bego, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Right now we have with us Dave Bigo. Dave is the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It's a story about the trails of dealing with union bosses from SEIU over the course of two and a half years. They tried to get him to sign a neutrality agreement, which would allow them to bypass secret ballot, and he could just they could just go by and sign up all of his employees. Dave said, nope, we're not going to do that. If you want to unionize us, you're going to have to do it through secret ballot so our uh, employees can make an informed and uh, unharassed decision. Well, uh, they didn't like that idea, so uh, he wrote about the dirty tricks they played over two and a half years. You can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. It comes right out of the Democrat playbook. Uh, the name of the book, The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave Dave Beagle, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob. Appreciate it. You know, what's interesting right now is I'm listening to what's happening in this administration and what they're proposing is they wouldn't need a neutrality agreement anymore because they could just go sign up employees if they get they get their way and the unions get their way in this administration. Well, that's exactly right. It's it's forced unionism is on the brink with this uh, administration uh, because you know I, I don't know if you've seen or heard, but Biden Biden comes out and and um, he says he's a union guy and. Um, and that's the truth. He's he's behind the unions, and uh, um, he's he said that since he's kicked off his presidential campaign, and uh, and now that he's in office, and, uh, and the whole thing is to give the unions uh, power and control. You know, I've, I've forgotten the story. I'm sure you know, but uh, there was some in our budget. There was some amount of money that went to the teachers' union, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a cozy relationship between the Democrat Party and all these unions. It's it's really criminal. 
Well, not only that, in, in his infrastructure budget, there's about $400 billion aimed at uh, um, um, health care, uh, which is to let the uh, SEIU build the number of membership they have and their union daughter, uh, uh, dollars that they collect so that they can uh, help the Democratic Party again in the next election. So is this, uh, are they thinking of, at one point they're thinking about trying to allow people who are staying home with their parents to and taking care of their parents uh, to uh, have to pay union dues. They're not going back to that idea, are they? Um, I, I, I think there is in some areas, but uh, some of it, uh, again, is uh, what they're doing in, in actually facilities and stuff like that and, and actually opening up some more facilities so that there's more health care workers and Healthcare workers are all unionized. Yeah. And, um, you know, that will be to the SEIU's advantage. Absolutely. In fact, uh, part of his, uh, he said uh, by executive order, I'm talking about Joe Biden, that uh, all contracts have to be unionized and the minimum pay has to be $15 an hour. That's, that's you know, uh, that's just ring up ching ching, just ring up the cash register for our expenses. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's, uh, that's what they're doing, and, and again, that's the push behind him, and, you know, it's it's interesting. We were at dinner last night with uh, um, some friends of ours, and uh, we were sitting there talking about this stuff, too, and um, the thing that uh, the guy that I was with, uh, he, uh, he says, you know, Biden is just a mask. He is being controlled behind the scene by the far left and the unions and, uh, and others, and uh, he's he's just the mask up there speaking, and that's it. Yeah. So this is a, a we had a very interesting conversation with a couple of other guests, and uh, you know the conclusion is that we're on a one way ticket to socialism right now. If that's the, right. If that's the, exactly right. If this uh, president and this administration gets its way, I mean, we're going to have expanded health care, uh, government intruding in our, our health care even more than it already is. Everything is going to be unionized. We're going to have uh, every Kids going to preschool, government preschools. Kids going to uh, free uh, community college. It's it's uh, all, of course, with indoctrination about uh, socialism. So it's scary, it's scary pros prospects right well, now. Yeah, well, it is, and, and the sad thing is that over the last 20, 30 years, uh, a lot of the kids have been indoctrinated into socialism at schools. You know that are um, unionized schools. You know, mostly public schools is what it is, and. Uh, uh, that's why a lot of the millennials and uh, the younger people uh, support what uh, Biden is saying and what the left is saying. And, uh, you know, the one thing, and I will say this, but he is just uh, in his speaking, even though, you know, he he's blabbering about stuff that's not true, um, is that uh, he is very calm and, uh, and presents himself uh, very well, which is helping him and the Democratic Party uh, you know, attract people to them. Yeah, just taking a step back. I mean, uh, Barack Obama was smooth. He was so smooth. Uh, Joe Biden is calming. President Trump wasn't. He was a uh, kind of an agitator. He shook things up. But, you know, when you take a look at what's best for the country, I'd prefer to have an agitator, prefer to have somebody who kind of shakes things up to a smooth talker that's pushing us down the road to socialism. Yep, I, I agree with you. And, um, and by the way, I don't know if you know, Mike Pence is looking at uh, uh, probably he spoke out in South Carolina the other day, and uh, he really targeted um, 
what uh, Biden had to say and that, and that Biden was wrong and you know, all the things he said about, you know, employment is better, the economy is better and all that. But that was all stuff that uh, was built by the Trump administration and that uh, just started blooming again, even in early January as the pandemic started to fade away. Yeah. So uh, out of curiosity, Mike Pence is from Indiana. Of course, I believe you're, you're governor there and uh, served, yep. served as our vice president. Uh, what's your view of him right now? I mean, he uh, didn't do what the president had hoped he would do, put on his big boy pants during the uh, uh, confirmation or the review of the uh, uh, electoral college votes. What are your thoughts about uh, Mike Pence? Well, I know Mike pretty well. You know, when I was writing my book and I was fighting the Employee Free Choice Act that they were trying to get passed. I was in, in Washington a lot and spoke to him when he was in the House then and uh, um, and then when he was the governor here and that. And he's a, he's a good guy. He's a professional. And by the way, he was a, a radio uh, person like you are. And, um, and he, um, but uh, the, the problem I had with Mike is whether he really has the backbone and really will take... Um, has the energy to stand up and, and really work hard on things. Because um, what I noticed when I tried to get him involved with the Employee Free Choice Act and other things is that he would just have other people work on that stuff. And he he just was, uh, he didn't get involved as much as he should have. Yeah, he impresses me as kind of a uh, uh, taking care, he's a, He's he's he's, uh, he's uh, done a risk taker. Is the way he looks to me. He's basically somebody he did a great job, I think, with the coronavirus and his role for President Trump. But uh, you know, he's basically doing the work. He's not necessarily taking big risks. I think he's more comfortable just, uh, you know, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? He's just being a shepherd as opposed to a leader. Yeah. So. Um you know, so we'll see where it goes. Of course, Trump is, uh, I think, pushing forward. So we'll see the same. But Trump, on the other hand, he does, um, even though he does need to, um, uh, when he speaks, uh, really point things out that he, he needs to clean it up just a little bit, too. I think you're absolutely right. I wonder if, he's, if he will run for president or whether he will choose a successor. Uh, that's uh, in the absence of information. That's kind of the agenda I've uh, made up in my own mind. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to tell at this point, but I think we'll find out more here in the next uh, six months or so. Absolutely. Dave Bego, again, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. I can't encourage you enough to get a copy of the book because it is a terrific read. It really reads like a, a, like a, mist, like a novel, but uh, it's all true. It's so sad. But uh, Dave, did, he prevailed. It's because of uh, the personal leadership and strength that he had with his employees. So, again, thedevilatourdoorstep.com is the website. You can get a copy of the book on my website at a nice discount, of course, at all book purveyors. Dave, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, and you have a great weekend. You as well. Thank you, Dave. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I've learned a lot, and I hope you did. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com if you'd like to get a copy of the newsletter I send out after each show. It's bobharden at hotmail.com. On Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. He's also an author. He's written several books on mainly on past presidents. We'll visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. 
that he's written since he retired, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. And Larry Reed is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Always look forward to visit with Larry as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast. Great weekend as well, or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com. <laughs>